This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 90 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Robert Kaplan, and we're talking about his newest book, Adriatic, a concert of civilizations at the end of the modern age. As you know, Robert is the author of many books, including The Ends of the Earth, An Empire Wilderness, and the controversial Balkan Ghosts. In this episode, We talk about why the Adriatic is so interesting historically and culturally, how the Adriatic might see another renaissance, so to speak. We talk about Venice, his notion about travel writing as a vehicle, and a lot more. Anyway, before we start the podcast today, just a note to say, please tell your friends about the podcast, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use and support the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, join the hundreds of other subscribers and sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. That's with two S's and two T's. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Robert Kaplan. Robert Kaplan is my guest today, and we're talking about his new book, Adriatic, A Concert of Civilizations at the End of the Modern Age. Robert, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Jeremy. So at the beginning of your book, you note that the Adriatic, and I'm referring here to the, to the area surrounded by the sea, you note it's overlooked by journalists, by writers, and strategists. So perhaps to start things off, can you uh, paint me a picture as to why the Adriatic is overlooked and, and perhaps why do you find it uh, so interesting? Um, I don't know why it is overlooked, except that there are generally books about the Mediterranean in, enlarged and not specifically about the interior seas within the Mediterranean. Uh, mm-hmm. I found it fascinating because the Mediterranean, uh, rather the Adriatic, is a fault line. It's a fault line much like the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea. It's between, it hovers between east and west. It has v- v- Venice on the west coast, uh, the Ottoman Turks on the east. It has Catholicism on the west. It has Eastern Orthodoxy and Islam on the east. Um, it is, you know, it is really a fault line of civilizations. And yet at the same time, as I would discover, it was also a place where civilizations mixed and matched and coalesced together. So for all those reasons, and aside from the fact that it's just uh, utterly beautiful and yet enigmatic, because it is hard to paint a clear uh, sort of uh, one-dimensional picture of it. It's not. It doesn't um, lead to associations of Homeric myth like the Aegean Sea does. 
and it doesn't lead to associations of seafaring Islam like the Indian Ocean does. It's, it's a real mixture of modernist writing, modernist poetry, of, as I said, of venison and, and, and the Ottomans, of Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and Islam, of Central Europe and Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you're referring here to uh, mixing and matching. You you note that um, to think about the region as having a um, clash of civilizations is probably the wrong approach. Um, and indeed, the subtitle of your book refers to this very point that you're making here is that it's a concert of civilizations. You say in the book, it's 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 the globe in miniature. Um you know, uh, but it was one, you know, the, interestingly, um, for a long period of time, that was under the thumb of the Venetian Empire. And um, for that reason, it has like a strong Italian, you know, influence or Italianate influence in there. Um, your book takes us, of course, to Italy, uh, but it also takes us to Slovenia, Croatia, Montenegro, Albania and, and Greece. So just to kind of piggyback on, on what you said here, where, where in particular do we see this concert or this mixing and matching unfolding? Well, you see it most famously in Venice. Because Venice is Italian, it's Roman Catholic, yet the real soul, the aesthetic and artistic soul of Venice is Byzantine. It's Eastern. Mm-hmm. You see that in St. Mark's Cathedral, which is sort of a wonder house of Byzantine aesthetics. Uh, you see it, in, and not only in Venice, in Ravenna, where the book starts, where my book starts, here is Ravenna on, on the Italian coast, on the west side of the Adriatic Sea, and yet it's home to some of the greatest Byzantine and Eastern Orthodox jewels that you will find anywhere in the world. You would have to go to, to Turkey, to Romania, to Bulgaria um, to see the kind of art that here we see on the, on, on the coast of Italy. And then, um, of course, there's Trieste, which, in addition to a fault line between the Italians, the, um, uh, the, the Habsburg Austrians, and the Slovenes, was also a Cold War listening post between East and West. Hmm. Um, and you see it um, all along the coast of, of the Dalmatian coast, that is the eastern side of the Adriatic Sea where you're in the former Yugoslavia, but you're visiting cities, city-states, actually, whose whose historical character is Venetian. Right. So, you know, the the Venetian Empire was kind of this maritime power for for many centuries. And and yet you say, um, you know, this area, and I guess part of your interest, if, if I'm reading your book correctly, is that you know this this area is about to um, you know to see a new global significance, um, partly due to the fact that it was um, the maritime terminus of China's belt uh, and road policy, as you mentioned in the book. Um, so, how do you see the region, you know, becoming uh, more influential as a result of this Chinese policy? Yes. First, I should say mm-hmm. that the belt and road policy of China has been shifting. Um, and it, and you know, all books are written in one year, but they're not published <laughs> right. for three or four years later. And what's happened in Italy is that the new prime minister, uh, Mario Draghi, the former head of the European Central Bank, has been trying to slow down China's push into Italy. 
So now it looks like there may be a Hamburg consortium that will take the port of Trieste rather than China. But the one thing about the Chinese, I've covered Chinese maritime activities throughout the Indian Ocean, and the Chinese are relentless. If they're disappointed one day, they'll come back a few years later and keep pushing. And they have interests throughout Italy. So the big picture The big picture is that in the coming years, because of natural gas discoveries in the eastern Mediterranean, we're going to see pipelines built that will go go through the Balkans, that will go under the Adriatic, and that will bring natural gas to Central Europe from the eastern Mediterranean, providing an alternative to Russian natural gas. But of course, Uh, This alternative is years in the future and therefore does not figure very prominently in current news articles about uh, Germany's need for Russian gas. So there's the gas element. There's the fact of Chinese, you know, mercantile, maritime, mercantile policy. The Adriatic is being internationalized. Um, And though it's not a violent fault zone like the Black Sea currently is, it is a fault zone, and yet it's right in the heart of Europe. Mm-hmm. It's being internationalized, and I, I suppose that's uh, another like shorthand to say also uh, globalized. You talk about Venice and globalization, and um, lamentably, I think you you note you know to discover Venice is really to to read about Venice and in, in the books of history because it's been so, I guess, globalizers you know, reflects a sort of monoculture that we see in 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 in, in global in the globalized world. Yes, indeed. Uh Venice, you cannot get away from Venice. Um I was saying, well, I want to do a book on the Adriatic. I want to go to Ravenna, to Trieste, to uh to Split, um, to Coper, to all these places. But I was actually least attracted to Venice because it has been so overwhelmed by mass tourism. Um, I went at the very end of October. It was cold and rainy, and it was just packed with tourists. And of course, tourism, mass tourism in the 21st century is a vital part of globalization. Um, So in Venice, you're not just appreciating Byzantine art uh, or just a city where you don't hear the, the noise of automobiles. Um, but you're also seeing the impact of globalization of the cruise ship industry, et cetera. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, your book is a, I guess, a celebration of, of travel, but also like reading. Um, and of course, it's a, it's a work of travel literature. And you've, you've written your fair share of travel books in the past. Um, but later in the book, um, curiously, you, you say something about travel writing uh, that that struck me. You said you say uh, travel writing was by its very nature insubstantial, and you say this as you reflect uh, on the impact uh, and I guess the reception of your two most most famous works, the Balkan Ghosts and the End of the Earth. But I was wondering if you could help uh, me understand what you mean by uh, travel writing is naturally insubstantial in that context. Yes. Travel writing to me, and there are different opinions on this, but travel writing to me is merely a vehicle to talk about history, architecture, art, geopolitics, philosophy, you name it. It's a vehicle and a structure in order to be a generalist, in order to talk and reflect upon many subjects. 
in and of itself, travel writing can be one dimensional. You could say the same thing almost about journalism. Uh, you know, I always had a problem with journalism schools, as if journalism was a subject like history or music <laughs> or art um, or architecture. It's not a subject. It's just a vehicle to explain other to explain things that are real subjects. Um, and therefore, we should not put travel writing or journalism on a pedestal. We should see it as vehicles in order to reflect on different things. Um, and some of the greatest travel books, in my opinion, like Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, T.E. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom, the books of the several books of Patrick Lee Fermore mm -hmm. and others, when you actually read them, you see they're not. They're about much more than travel. In fact, that's what makes them great, uh, that, that, that you learn so much about a subject matter that normally doesn't fit into one basket. Um, you know, we're, we live in an age of specialization um, where, and, and of rampant credentialism. Um, and in this age of specialization and rampant credentialism, travel writing is a way to bring back generalism, uh, you know, being an old fashioned generalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess one of the interesting things about the genre of, of, of travel writing is, as you as you note, it's it can be many things. It's diverse. It has this breadth that we don't get in the, in the specialized um, world. It's like a vehicle, as you as you mentioned, or a method or a premise to kind of explore other ideas. Um, hopefully, um, I'm glad you mentioned Rebecca West um, because uh, your name and her name comes up in kind of academic circles when uh, discussing, I guess, the power of travel literature. And here I'm thinking about Balkan Ghosts. Uh, one, one argument goes that you know that, as you know, the travel book is more powerful than the academic book uh, because it's more accessible or more popular or readable or you know, certainly cheaper right, uh, than academic books. But um, in, in your opinion, uh, does, does the travel book really have so much power or did it ever really have so much power? Um, I don't think it's specifically a travel book. Uh, that has so much power. It's non-academic writing um, <laughs> that has so much power. It's narrative writing that has so much power. Narrative writing, whether fiction, travel, nonfiction, popular history, uh, you know, people, it, people want to read a book where they want to know what happens on the next page. The problem with academic writing is that for the most part, it's it's much harder to read and to appreciate. One, I try to thread the needle in this book because I use as a basis for my travels. I refer to many. I refer to many academic books mm -hmm. and to many specialist books. But these, in my opinion, the books that I use in Adriatic are represent the best of academia and the best of specialization. So that um, you're, you know, so that although the books are academic, they bring great expertise to the table. They're also very readable if you apply yourself. So, you know, you know, it, the ninety-five percent of academic books that are difficult to read are one thing. In Adriatic, I'm talking about the top five percent that are really wonderful and literary. Mm -hmm. So, how might we kind of, you know? 
combine what we're talking about here with academic kind of difficulty, I guess, for lack of a better term, and, um, you know, making something that's substantial, like what can, what can one do to make, uh, you know, a travel book more substantial in your view? Is it to specialize? Um, is it research, research, so, you know, you only know as much as you can read mm-hmm. because what's in front of you is the here and now, but everything that's happened to the place where you are, up until the moment you arrive, can only be learned about through books. Um, So the more you've read about a place before you go, the more your your insight will be be aware, will be there um, when when you're actually describing the place. Uh, You become a deeper traveler through, through doing your research ahead of time. So when you refer to travel writing here, you're referring to those travel logs or those types of travel books that simply give us a blow by blow account of what somebody did and, you know, all the hardships that they faced on the road. This is what you're talking about. Those books don't have kind of like the the depth, the research, the significance or the attempt to say something interesting. They're just... Generally, but again, there are exceptions. Mm -hmm. And also one useful thing of a blow by blow, non-academic account that's, you know, very surface written on the surface is that if it's in a place that's hard to get to or of particular interest, it adds another layer of reality to, you know, to what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it adds to the conversation or the the general. um, Exactly. mm -hmm. Yeah, so, to, you know, this, your book is, um, you know, it's rich, it's erudite, it touches on travel and literature as much as memoir and history. It is kind of a travel log, <laughs> but it's also, <laughs> it is, it is, a, it's, a, it reads kind of like also a, a work of literary um, criticism. You know, it, it, it struggles with books, it struggle, you know, struggles with place, and it, it de- deals with uh, these, you know, two kind of spheres, uh, interestingly. Um, so just to, to close us out, Robert, um, how would you characterize this new book of yours? I would characterize it as a, as a kind of a book that very few people write anymore for readers who less and less exist. Um, because the, the book industry is becoming more and more pushed into specialization. Um, uh, and, and and with specialized readers who are only interested in that subject. And this is kind of a celebration of old fashioned generalist writing uh, to, you know, to be to go to a place and to be interested in everything and to and, and not to have a blow by blow account, but the but a very cerebral blow by blow account where the drama occurs internally intellectually that's you know to me that's that's somewhat of a different kind of book that than you normally get also it was very it's a very personal book as you know so um you know i'm i'm never going to be important enough to write a a a life memoir or to be you know or have a biography done on me or anything close to that so what i do is i put a little bit of myself into a book and you know, and you can only hope that it spices up the narrative. Mm-hmm. I think cerebral is a a good way to to put it. You know, you, this this book I think des- deserves um, time and it deserves some some attention. You know, it's not uh, 
a beach read, and I mean that in the best uh, possible way. Uh, so, Robert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jeremy. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support. <laughs>